This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hi, everyone, and welcome to DevRago Personal Finance, episode 114. And in this episode, we will discuss the concept of investing for kids. What are some of the options? I've had a fair bit of requests about this topic, so I'll go through some of the basics about it. And part of this episode will also incorporate the taxation implications of any income earned by children. For those of you that are new to the channel, there are three main aims. The first one is to be educated about personal finances, and with education, you can improve your financial literacy. And that leads to the second aim, which is to be empowered. You can use that knowledge and be empowered and take it to your credentialed advisor and speak at a level that you can understand in. And the third aim of this podcast channel is to be entertained. Just a disclaimer, I'm not a financial advisor. I'm not an accountant. I'm not a lawyer, nor am I a financial planner. Make sure you take any financial decisions you want to make to your appropriate advisors. If you're stuck on what to do, here are some simple steps to get you on the right track when it comes to saving, investing, and personal finance in general. In my humble view, there are five easy steps which anybody could follow. Step one is pay yourself first. Make sure you take at least 20% of after-tax income and put it aside. That is your money never to be touched ever again. You are the most important person in your life. Step two is you've got to invest that money, ideally into something that you understand or want to understand. For me, I understand the stock market and index funds, so I just invest in index funds. Step three is reinvesting those dividends. With reinvestment, the power of compounding is real. Step four is you've got to do this for the long term. Now, I'm not talking five, 10 or 15 years. I'm talking at least 20 years or 30 years or if not 40 plus years. The longer you do it, which means the earlier you start, the better it is for you. And step five, my favorite, is to automate wherever possible each of these steps. With automation means you are less likely to forget and you're more likely to stick to the plan and implement it over the long term. Now, if you just follow these five simple steps over the long term, you're more likely to end up with more money than you'll ever need. And remember, money is just a tool. It doesn't bring happiness. Use it as a tool to make your life a little bit better, but most importantly, the lives of people around you a lot better. Now to the main topic of investing for kids. This is a common question I get, and there are a number of different factors to consider. But the biggest factor to consider is taxation. So how does taxation work for income for children under the age of 18 years of age, which is relevant only for Australia? Please check with your own country's tax office for relevant information if you're listening from overseas. Now, in Australia, taxation under 18, generally speaking, 
income for miners is actually taxed at a higher rate. There used to be a time in Australia when you could distribute income to miners and pay a very low tax rate, but that loophole has long gone. There are exceptions to higher tax rates for miners in Australia if they fit the rule of what's called accepted persons. Now, an accepted person is one, someone who's finished full-time study and are working full-time, usually for the three months preceding completing their full-time studies, or someone who has disabilities, for example, someone who's on a disability support pension, or someone who cares for you and you have a disability support pension and they're getting a carer's pension, or you've been certified as having permanent blindness. That is considered an accepted person. Uh, The other eligibility is someone who's got a double orphan pension. This means both parents have passed away or one parent has passed away and the other is a psychiatric uh, patient or has been admitted to a nursing home and therefore is unable to care for the child. So those are the accepted persons that are not liable to pay the higher tax rates as minors. Now, there's also something called exemptions for income, which is called accepted income. And that is any employment income, and you need to check with the ATO about what that means. Uh, Any income which is taxable pensions or payments from Centrelink or the Department of Veterans Affairs. Uh, Any compensation or superannuation or pension fund benefits. Any income from a deceased person's estate, including income derived from a testamentary trust from property of the deceased person's estate. So this may be relevant for someone who's currently negotiating wills and have testamentary trusts set up. And any income from property that's transferred to you as a result of the death of another person or family breakdown or income in the form of damages for an injury that you suffer. So again, you need to check with the ATO about what does family breakdown mean? Um, I couldn't really find a definition of that. So I'm just going to leave it at that and you might have to do your due diligence as to what that actually means. Uh, Any income from your own business is accepted income and any income from a partnership in which you were an active partner. So there's a fair bit of exceptions when it comes to accepted income or accepted persons. Now, obviously, check with your accounting professional for more specifics to see if you qualify for these exceptions. Essentially, if you qualify for any of the exceptions when it comes to income, then you don't have to pay the higher tax rate right from the get-go. When I say you, I'm talking about the minor, not the adult here. Now, this means they only pay the same tax rates as adults do. So all the tax brackets apply to the minors as well. So what are the tax brackets for income which is not accepted for minors? The tax brackets are you pay 0% tax if you earn from $0 to $416. And then you pay 66% tax on anything earned from $417 to $1,307. And anything greater than $1,308, you pay 45% of the entire eligible income. So notice how anything greater than $416 the very high tax bracket of 66% applies. That is a huge tax bracket. It's actually higher than any adults would pay. For non-resident miners, they don't get the 0% tax-free threshold up to $416, which means they need to pay 32.5% tax from the first $1 
to $416. The point here is, unfortunately, income as minors is heavily taxed if they don't meet the accepted persons or income rule. So let's use an example to highlight how taxation works on incomes for minors. Amelia is 14 years old and has a total income of $19,200 of accepted income and $4,000 of other income. So how much tax will she need to pay? The accepted income of $19,200 will be taxed the same way as adults. So don't mistake accepted income as tax exemption. It doesn't mean that. It just means the minors will be taxed exactly the same as the adults. So in this case, Amelia's $19,200 will be taxed the same way as adults because that is her accepted income. She will get $18,200 tax-free threshold because that's what adults get. And the remaining $1,000 will be taxed at 19% which equates to $190 tax for the first $19,200 of accepted income. The tax on the remaining $4,000, which is non-accepted income, is at 45%. Notice they don't get the first $416 tax-free threshold because they've exceeded the threshold, so the tax for this component is $1,800. So the total tax is $1,800 plus $190, which is $1,990 for the total income of $19,200 plus $4,000. But wait, it's exactly not accurate. Amelia will be eligible, though, for the low-income tax offset and middle-income tax offset. So they're worth about $455 and $255, respectively, totaling $700. So she can now offset $700 against her tax liability of $1,990, but this only applies for the accepted income. So this is because she's eligible to offset it against taxation similar to any adult. So she won't have to pay the $190 tax on accepted income as she has $700 of tax offsets available. So therefore her tax liability is $1,800. Sorry, I did make a mistake. I said she's eligible to offset her uh, tax offsets against the entire tax liability. That's not true. It's only against the accepted income. So in this case, she has $700 to offset against $190 of tax liability for her accepted income. So what happens to the leftover $510? Well, Can Amelia use the remaining tax offsets and roll it over to the following years? And the answer is no, she can't roll over any tax offsets. What about income from savings account? Is this treated differently? This gets a little tricky on who pays taxes and at what rates. For example, does the child pay the taxes or the parent pay the taxes? The ATO specifically states about the intent for the account. This is where intent comes in. So you need to probably pay a little bit more careful attention to these, some examples that I'm going to give you. If the parent deposits the money and withdraws it and spends it as they wish, they need to include any interest earned on that account as part of their own tax return, that is the parent's tax return. If the parent is the trustee for the child via a trust account, then you need to quote the trustee offend for taxation purposes. So let's use some examples to highlight this point. 
Rachel opens an account for a four-year-old son, Jack. She deposits $50,000 into the account. She then makes regular deposits and withdrawals to pay for Jack's school expenses. The interest earned from the account is considered to be Rachel's, that is, the parents, and not Jack's. Another example, Amy is the trustee or signatory for a daughter Madeline's account. Madeline is seven years old and her account is all of her birthday money and Christmas present money. Any interest earned is considered Madeline's. So you need to work out the differences in those two examples. Now, do children need a tax file number? Technically, they don't need it, but it's best to have it if they have an income so they don't get slugged with the highest marginal tax rate. Any interest earned from a minor aged less than 16 years of age via a savings account, the financial institution will not hold pay-as-you-go tax, but if the TFN is not supplied, they will take 47% of the interest, or that's declarable. To get a tax refund, then you will need to apply for a TFN. What about income from share investments? How is that treated for minors? Now, who declares dividends and net gains on children's share investments? That's number one. That's really tricky. This depends on three factors. Factor one is who provides the money for the shares. Factor two is who makes decisions about share investments. And factor three is who spends the dividend income. If a child has share investments and earns greater than $416, they need to lodge a tax return for them too. This means they need a TFN and you need to quote the TFN to the investment fund or share portfolio manager in order to avoid being slugged the 47% top marginal tax rate. So let's use an example to highlight how dividends and capital gains works for investments under children's names. Macon buys $5,000 worth of shares in the name of his son, Robin. The dividends amount to $250, which is deposited into Macon's account, and he spends that money. This means Macon needs to declare the dividends in his tax return, and when he sells the investments, the capital tax or capital gains tax applies to Macon, not to Robin, his son. Another example Simon buys $5,000 worth of shares for his daughter Georgia, who is four years old. All dividends are deposited into Georgia's account and reinvested into the portfolio. Simon quotes Georgia's TFN. Simon is the trustee for the investments. The dividends and the net capital gains or net losses now belong to Georgia and her tax return. So, That's about it for taxation when it comes to minors, and it's important to understand the implications of that if you're considering investing in the name of your child. Before we get on to the types of investments available, let's consider some factors in addition to taxation that one must consider when you're thinking about investing for your child. The number one thing to think about is timeline. This is very important. Ideally, with children, you're going to be investing for their lifetime, for their long term. Number two is, what are the goals of investments here? Is it for education for school or tertiary? Is it for a car? Is it for future retirement consideration or giving them a leg up in their life? Is it for their wedding? Is it for their own children, that is your grandchildren? Or is it to help them get into the property market? And step three is how much maintenance you want, how much input you're going to have, how much active trading or passive trading that you might be doing.
So let's discuss what investment options there are if you wanted to invest for your children. Option one is a simple savings account. Just putting money into the savings account sounds quite boring, but it actually has a deeper value. This teaches children about the habits of saving, perhaps even the pay yourself method early on in their life. They're good for short-term access to money, it's safer, it's less volatile. The returns on their money is abysmal, even for higher interest savings account or term deposits. So you're not really putting it into the savings account to get optimal returns, but you may be doing it to teach them a valuable lesson. There's always the the taxation implications as discussed, they'll be liable to pay tax. And if you want to do something like this, it may just make sense to simply have their money offset against any home loans you may have. Paying down your debt just makes sense if you want a safer, relatively easy option. Option two is investment bonds or insurance bonds. Now they're considered tax paid investments. I've covered investment bonds in episode 87, where I go into very deep detail. So go back and listen to it if you're interested. But in summary, they're a type of savings plan useful for defined goals for children. You need to pay tax 30% of any bond earnings, and this happens within the bond. So people think investment bonds are tax-free. It's actually not tax-free. You are paying 30% tax within the bond. It's useful if you're a higher income earner on a tax bracket above 30%. It would not make sense for those below this tax bracket. And generally, it's more suitable for long-term investors, at least 10 years or more. If you want to sell the bond after 10 years, any profit you make is not taxable because you've already paid taxes during the time you held the bond. And there are limits on how much money you can contribute to the bond on a yearly basis. And there are tax implications and penalties if you breach those. So let's use an example to highlight the features of investment bonds. Amy buys an investment bond for her eight-year-old son with a plan to hold it for 10 years and hopefully sell it for a profit when her daughter turns 18 years old. The initial bond is $10,000 and she plans to contribute $10,000 per year. During the 10 years, a 30% tax is paid within the investment bond on returns and Amy does not need to declare this to the ATO. It's done automatically. Amy's tax bracket is 40%, so it's tax effective for Amy. After 10 years, Amy can sell it and any profits are not taxed. And during the 10 years, Amy needs to be careful not to contribute more than 125% of a previous year's contribution. If she breaches that rule, then the 10-year rule starts again and she can't sell the bond when her daughter turns 18 years old without paying extra tax, that is, any marginal tax rates on any profits that she may achieve. Like any investment product, there are risks involved with investment bonds, and you're relying on an investment manager to manage the investment bonds. And you can lose your investment if things don't perform well. There are various risk profiles depending on the investment bonds. So that's option two. Option three is listed investment companies, ETFs, or index-managed funds. This is what many listeners already do anyway for their own lives. The risks and benefits are the same. I've covered LIC episodes in number 36. I've covered ETFs versus index funds in episode 33. I do a really deep dive in these episodes, so I suggest you revise them for this section. Risks, like all investments, if you invest in the stock market, you need to be doing so for the long term. 
In my view, long term is 20 years at least. Option four is superannuation. Now, you can actually create a super fund account for your children and start regularly gifting some money to be put into their fund. Student Super is an example of a company that offers this. I actually did not know much about this. I didn't know that you can actually create a student super account. Now, it capitalizes on what's called the lost decades. Thinking about it, when kids don't work, they don't get super. This means they're essentially failing to capitalize on the power of compounding. Remembering that investing is all about compound returns, so the earlier you start for a child, the more money they're likely to end up with. Fees can vary between super funds. For example, student super provides zero fees for balances less than $1,000, but if between $1,000 and $4,900, they will receive a 50% discount on their administration fee per annum. You need to do your due diligence though, because when you dig deeper, for example, for student super, accounts can have higher management fees as you have more balances, up to 0.99%, depending on the investment options you select. The advantage of student super is you don't need to create trust accounts, you don't need to deal with accountants, you don't need to lodge tax returns every year, so the overall cost may in fact be cost effective when compared to other options. They call this the golden goose gifting strategy. Also, any contributions you make towards your concessional and non-concessional contributions cap. So that means that if you contribute to the student super in the name of your child, those contributions are taken away from your concessional or non-concessional contributions cap. So it's not in addition to your own contributions. It's inclusive of your contributions. You need to take that into account when considering student super options for your child. Option five is discretionary trust to income distribute to children. This is a common topic that comes up on online forums and Facebook forums. We've discussed this before on how taxes work for income for children under age 18. You can create a trust account called a discretionary trust, and I've covered this in detail in episode 61, so if you're interested, go back and listen to it. Essentially, the ATO allows income distribution to several thousand dollars per year per child back in the day. That income distribution has now been reduced to $416 per child. Let's use an example to discuss this. Amy has four children aged four, seven, nine, and 11. Amy's annual income is $200,000. So Amy can distribute up to $416 for each child via a tax structure. I'm simplifying this for the sake of the podcast. This means investments made under a trust earns income and this gets distributed to each of their child. So if the income is $20,000 in total, then each child gets $416, which is tax-free, then the leftover income is taxed at the level of the trustee's income tax, that is Amy's income tax. So the taxable income is only $18,336 rather than the whole $20,000, i.e. $416 per child has already been distributed. Amy needs to do some sums about whether this is actually useful given the costs of accounting and lodging tax returns, etc. Because running a company or a trust structure may sound like a good idea, but you might be saving some tax, but you might be losing money on account keeping fees and ASIC fees. So you need to do your own sums before you go into that pathway. Now, this all sounds really cliche, but possibly the best investment you can make for your child is investing in your own health and wealth. Sounds really lame, 
but it's really important. Your child's future is entirely dependent on how healthy you are, how good your personal financial behaviour is. If you don't follow basic steps like paying yourself first, being debt-free, investing early in your life, then you're not likely to follow the plan for your children. If you're not following simple steps like exercising, eating healthy, then your longevity impairs the ability for your children to become wealthy. There is no point in saving for the children's future if you have consumer debts, and there's no point in saving for children's future if you make bad investment decisions in your own life. Remember, protecting their investments is all about making sure you're protected with personal insurance. That's another thing that you need to think about before you start thinking about investing in your children's names. And the last thing you want to leave your children or family is debt and a bad financial affairs in the rare event you die or become severely impaired. So look after yourself, eat healthy, exercise, and make sure you follow a simple financial strategy for your own life, which can then be replicated for your children. Now, if you don't invest for your children, it's okay because your children are going to be looking to the financial habits that you've done in your life and hopefully when they become adults at the age of 18 and start working part-time or full-time, they're going to learn from you and be able to implement those strategies earlier in their life. So I get a lot of questions about parents really stressing out about not really having much investments for their children. But the best investment in my view is making sure your financial habits are secure, to making sure your wealth building strategy is sound, to making sure that you're protected with personal insurance, you're eating healthy, you're fit and healthy and exercising, and you have a will and testamentary trust and estate planning structures so that in the rare event that you're not around, your children have a blueprint to follow. It's all about teaching them on how to fish rather than giving them fish. That's about it for this topic. Remember to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast or whatever platform you may be using, or just leave a five-star rating on all the platforms. That's even better. And please leave a positive review. And in that theme, here is a review I found on Apple Podcasts from Kuravan84, who says, amazingly informative. I've learned so much with these quick and well-presented podcasts. Thanks, Kuravan84. Great feedback. The more ratings and reviews you leave, the more people get access to the podcast, so please keep them coming. I do this for free, and I hope to do this for free for a long time. Remember to like Devraga Facebook page, shout out to questions and comments or topic suggestions, share this channel with family and friends, Apple Podcast, Anchor, CastBox, Spotify, Google. I'm on all the major podcasting platforms, so you can download it and listen to it directly from devraga.com. And remember, always pay yourself first 20% of after-tax income. Learn about the tax implications if you invest for your children because it's really important. This is Devraga Personal Finance, Episode 114. And as always, please make sure you stay safe. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.